Welcome to the Joan Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. If I may get us going here, I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy. It is my great pleasure to uh, welcome back uh, to the Kennedy School uh, Linda Robinson, who was a Neiman Fellow and uh, is now genuinely, we were talking just briefly before, uh, someone who has been given probably unparalleled access uh, to special ops in this country. Uh, As an expert at the RAND Corporation, she has made this an area of specialty, and she has a new book that is getting ready to come out, and it is called... 100 Victories. 100 Victories. (laughs) All right. Um, She is, uh, as I say, she's a a friend from the past. Uh, She got her start in this area particularly, although she had been a journalist who had covered things in in this realm. She got her her real a real start in the focus on special ops while she was at Harvard. And uh, I'm very eager to hear what you have to say. There's certainly no more uh, lively subject uh, now that the uh, debt ceiling issue has passed us uh, than the, the foreign policy issues, especially the ones involving military affairs and uh, special ops uh, that are going on by the United States around the world. Linda, glad to have you. Thank you, Alex. I'm you delighted to be here. And Edie. Did you Edie. mention the co-sponsorship? Oh, I beg your pardon. I think I have to be reminded of things yeah. these days. Uh, our brown bag today is, is co-sponsored by the, by the uh, uh, you know, National Security pro- Program here at the Kennedy School. How many of you are National Security Fellows or affiliated in some fashion? Great. Well, we're delighted to have you with us. And thank you. We are delighted to be co-sponsoring this uh, this session with you. Linda. Thank you, Alex. It's really such a pleasure to be back here and to see Edie and Alex and a few other familiar faces. Anyone, I think, who spent time here um, remembers it fondly and wishes they were back. Um, I uh, The book is out, first let me say. It was published on October 8th, so right in the middle of the uh, one of the bigger government crises we've had. But uh, I've been busy uh, running around talking about it. And I thought, because we have military expertise in the audience, but this is also the press center. And as a former journalist, I wanted to talk a bit about how I made this my niche and what was involved um, in learning about and gaining, particularly gaining access to what was at the time a very closed uh, community. I I thought also it's important for me to lay the groundwork, even though some of the National Security Fellows probably know uh, the details better than I do. I think it's important to describe who Special Operations Forces are, because there's, I think, a very um, imperfect general um, knowledge about who, what elements constitute Special Operations Forces. So let me just knock that out very quickly. There are 33,000 uniformed Special Operators in the U.S. military, um, and they, the uh, civilians uh, and uniformed personnel assigned to the major command, U.S. Special Operations Command, is actually 67,000. So they do have a number of other personnel assigned, but it's 33,000 that are really the guys in uniform with those patches on their shoulders. And that size has doubled over since 9-11 or shortly before 9-11. So they've undergone really a historic expansion. They've also uh, been deployed uh, longer, more frequently and longer than at any time in their history. The op tempo, as they say, is about three times, uh, particularly at the peak when we had large numbers in both Afghanistan and Iraq. Now, little-known fact is that the Army's Special Operations Forces constitute half of all special operations forces. Um, Now, we know that our beloved Navy SEALs get a ton of press, 
and they're great, but they are a very small fraction, and most people don't realize that. Uh, of the Army Special Operations Forces, half of those are um, the Green Berets, the Army Special Forces. The other elements of Army Special Operations Forces are the Ranger Regiment, again, fairly small, about 3,400, Civil Affairs, what used to be called PSYOP, Psychological Operations, and they've now adopted a new name and a new acronym, Military Information Support Operations, and the acronym is MISO, and I think it's terrible because it <laughs> sounds like a soup. Um, and the 160th Army Aviators, and those are helicopter uh, pilots and crew. So then the balance, uh, other than Army Special Operations Forces, as I mentioned, is Naval Special Warfare and Air Force Special Operators, and those are fixed-wing or airplane uh, pilots and crews, as well as unmanned aerial vehicles. The, um, they have a number of specialties like combat crewmen, um, I'm sorry, combat controllers, and these are the individuals that go out with the ground special operations teams. They're Air Force guys, and their specialty is calling in the airstrikes uh, and connecting the air and the ground pieces. And then finally, the newest element of the special operations community is the Marine Special Operations uh, Command, and they are are small, but they've been out there in force. And in the book that I wrote, even though I went to other places, they were played a significant role in in Helmand in the south, in the west, and the north. Uh, and everybody was employed. And I know I want to acknowledge uh, J.R. Anderson, I think, is in the room here. Um, and of course, he was out there, and I met him in Uruzgan in southern um, <coughs> Afghanistan as the SEALs uh, really ran the show there in Uruzgan and Zabul. Uh, so we can go uh, into greater detail if you have any questions about uh, the forces, but I want to talk for just a few minutes. Um, this, uh, as, as Alex said, I had a year here as a Neiman Fellow. I'd spent uh, most of my career focused on insurgencies, starting with Latin America and Central America, political transitions, um, I had done a lot of work, uh, spent time in Cuba. You know, I was basically running around in the conflicted areas of the world. I'd raised my hand to go out to the Balkans, but um, the editor at the time at U.S. News, where I spent the bulk of my career, um, had instead Samantha Powers as a stringer go out and cover <laughs> it. So I ceded place to her. Um, I, I think... Um, it's important, and I'll let you ask the questions that occur to you, but I had, uh, I met my uh, special operations sort of door openers at a conference, an Army War College conference about Columbia, where I'd spent a lot of time, and I'd been out with the FARC, I'd been out with the Colombian military, I'd been out to the squirrely spots of that country, so I already knew it very well. And uh, that began, that was the first place that I went with the, uh, or, or joined up and covered special operations on the ground there after I finished my fellowship. So really this year here was spent with them sending me a reading list and saying, you, we know you have all the downtime now, go read all these books. Uh, and I found actually going to Widener that the literature on the British SAS and SBS is much bigger uh, than anything that was written historically about the American uh, special operations uh, and their precursors, such as Merrill Marauder, Merrill's Marauders, which I just found out Alex's father was a member of. So if you're interested in this story, you need to come knock on his door. Uh, at any rate, I spent the year not only doing research here, but I was invited down to Bragg to get some briefings and... Um, observe some exercises there on the base and then a culminating exercise in in Charlotte, North Carolina actually. So through all of this they were both trying to educate me. They, the decision was really okay if we have someone who's interested in devoting the time to really learning about us, learning our doctrine, but also it was a chance for them to put eyes on me in these different situations to see if I was going to act like a jerk. Um, and this was pretty important before I was sent out uh, with a 12-man uh, team uh, to a remote spot where um, things, you know, could, I could jeopardize, in their view, I could jeopardize either their, uh, their men or their mission. 
so I kind of went through this vetting process and uh, and spent time in Colombia. And then the I had done a cover story for U.S. News and World Report that came out just about the time they were deciding to uh, select some journalists to go to Iraq as the embedded journalists with different units. And there was, um, uh, well, I think the vice chief of staff of the Army, Jack Keane, was one of those who said, well, here's someone who's obviously already done some research. Why don't we put her on the list for uh, one of the special operations embeds in Iraq? And that, that was what I did. I spent actually my first days with the uh, Navy SEALs off the waterways and Um Qasar and as they were boarding and clearing the vessels there. And then a few days with AFSOC, the Air Force Special Operators, as they were dropping SEALs and others into uh, Talil Air Base. I know this is ancient history for so many uh, people here. Anyway, so I got my exposure to the different elements and then went in with the uh, Army Special Forces and Civil Affairs and PSYOP that were all working together in this um, uh, triad and moved with them from southern Iraq, from the Basra area up to central and over to Kut. So that was really very extensive uh, time spent with them repeatedly went back to Iraq and visited special operations units there, and particularly their very intensive effort to build the Iraqi special operations uh, forces. And then I had been out in Afghanistan early in the war, and I started going back uh, to Afghanistan, and I, I have watched then over the last really two years uh, three developments the Village Stability Operations and Civil Defense, or Afghan Local Police Initiative, uh, was the first and most intensive focus of my research. But I also uh, visited and followed the development of the Afghan Special Operations Forces, um, which is generally considered the most proficient part of the Afghan military now, and I can talk a bit about that. And then the third um, element that I followed in Afghanistan was the evolution of the U.S. and coalition command structure. And this was a very important but somewhat arcane topic um, because for the first time uh, the leadership was really pushing all of these different soft tribes to come together under one uh, command structure and really try to get more synergy out of their respective specialties and assignments. And that, to me, represents a great leap forward. And so I see these different things as quite applicable to the future, the way in which they, they will exercise command and control in the future, although I, am, I would put my hand in the fire uh, uh, over this bet that you will not see another deployment so large of special operators any time in the near future, including the coalition uh, forces. There were 14,000, uh, over 14,000 special operators out there, and there was a very heavy NATO and other countries like Lithuania, Estonia, Poles, Jordanians, United Arab Emirates. It was really a United Nations of soft that was out there. And many people don't realize that. So again, my big theme here is partnering. This was um, one, I think, another wave of the future. I think we're going to see not only a lot more partnered soft operations, but multinational soft, perhaps led by non-U.S. Non partners. Um, so... Why, I guess I should say uh, about the door opening, you know, I, I guess as I wrote my stories, um, I, you know, I never really felt like I had, um, during the initial phase of Iraq, we had a PAO with us, and I see my friend thank, Frank Thorpe here, and delighted to see him. We had a PAO with us, but it actually the team for, and for the, the initiative public affairs officer. Excuse me for the acronyms, and I will try not to do that. Um, for this embed program in Iraq, they generally had a, a public affairs officer with uh, each embedded journalist. The team and company commander I was with, they just wanted to lighten up their, their load of outsiders. So they sent him home, and the car, so, company sergeant major became my, my minder. And I had a, an epiphany early on about the kind of thing that was considered off-limits when, because I was allowed to take pictures, they were out using these uh, shoulder 
uh, launched um, unmanned aerial vehicles, little just like a little model airplane. Uh, and I was allowed to take pictures of that, and the company sergeant major said, okay, you can send these out, but first you have to digitally remove the ball cap of the guy, the Air Force guy launching it, <laughs> because he would get in trouble for not being in uniform. So that was the kind of thing that they were concerned about. I didn't, I didn't suffer onerous um, uh, vetting uh, of my uh, stories, and I think that... Um, you know, it's it's always something that people ask about this embed experience. Do you fall in love with your subjects? Do you feel like you get the story? And I'm always quick to say, I think, you know, the reporting profession must have unilateral reporting as well. You have to have people outside the bubble as well as inside the bubble. Um, but I, I felt personally like I got a good education and pretty free reign. Now, when we come to covering the village stability operations in Afghanistan, there was really not much access at all to this program. And at its peak, this involved 52 special operations teams. So Army, Navy, uh, um, Marine teams spread out all over the country in the remotest places. And the commands were very nervous about letting me go out there and stay, which is what I needed to do to do the book and to make repeat visits to the same places. So it wasn't just, a, you know, parachute in, see people for a few days, and leave. So all my trips to Afghanistan were a minimum of four weeks, usually six weeks, because I'd have to get out to the area. Um, and I obviously, as you can tell, and if you look at the book, that is where I spent my time. I did manage to get that access and secured uh, the kind of in-depth exposure that I felt was necessary. I also... I was very concerned also in these extremely conservative villages in this, you know, this most conservative part of um, a very sensitive culture that I not create a problem uh, and not uh, become an alien or unwanted uh, entity there. And so we went through kind of an elaborate process, and this was really the teams initiated this. They would take me to meet the elders, and they would explain what I was doing. And, of course, I was always dressed in a very conservative uh, way. And this, to me, was very important that I felt like I had the acceptance of that village as well to be there. And I still remember, I mean, when I would go into and was invited into some of these kalats, the mudwild compounds, I just, I'll never forget how the women there would react to me because they just couldn't fathom here, what was I doing here, you know, and where, why wasn't I home with my family and <laughs> my children? And, you know, it just, uh, there's no more alien culture I've, you know, been exposed to in my entire career. And I think that really struck me the need to work very delicately and very sensitively there. And I'll just skip to one of the, the bottom lines. You know, people always say, well, what about the insider attacks? And what does that say about the welcome or not of mm -hmm. the Afghan people? The incidence of insider attacks against uh, the special operators was extremely low. These people, by and large, managed to bond with those villages and with those villagers. Now, there was, of course, the most, the worst atrocity of the war, and the worst case was Sergeant Bales in, um, in Panjway, which was the district next door to the district I spent most of my time, the district of Maywand in Kandahar. And I was actually flying into Maywand that morning after this had happened. Uh, and I, the, uh, when I got to the team site there in Maywand, they were locked down and everyone was waiting to see if the, the district was going to erupt in outrage and, and riots and attacks on the team. And I think people were kind of amazed that that didn't happen. Um, and, of course, there was all kinds of, of drama and fallout next door, and we can talk about what, what happened, that transpired there. Obviously, uh, Sergeant Bales um, pled guilty, and he's um, received a life uh, sentence. But that was a very delicate time. But I think that the credit I would give in that situation was to the Afghan Special Forces team that was living with, and people, I mean, these guys were living in the same compound, so I can't stress how much uh, in close proximity 
uh, the special operations teams were with the native population. Uh, unlike some of these bigger fobs that are heavily guarded and really walled off, these guys were living right in the village in a kalat, uh, and, and they had sort of a combined kalat with this Afghan special forces team. So in the hours after this, the news of the massacre started spreading, the Afghan special forces team went out and went around to the villagers and talked to people and, and uh, tried to get the temperature of what was going on and how people were reacting. Um, and at that time, they had a, a pretty strong cadre of Afghan local police, which had taken them forever. You know, Maywand is a deep Taliban territory, and it had taken them a long time to have villagers come forward and say, we want to provide, we want to be part of a local defense force. Um, and these guys were, were also instrumental, but they had... Um, uh, they had their questions too, and when I, there was one of those local uh, police commanders that when I saw him after the, the lockdown was uh, lifted, he said, you know, if he was crazy, why was he in the army? And I thought, well, that's as pretty a succinct a question as I could imagine uh, uh, framing. And, you know, they, they'd seen a lot, and especially Maywand had, had seen some earlier um, uh, atrocities occur as well. So these people are no stranger to, you know, to violence and things going bad. But I think it's the toughness of the Afghan people that are going to take this, uh, take this thing home. And we can talk about this. I'll just wrap up because I know we want to talk, get to questions and answers. Did this initiative of local defense work? Well, it worked in some critical areas. Kunar, Paktika, uh, I would say in Orozgan. Now, there are a couple of districts of Orozgan that are going to remain problematic. Uh, and, uh, and those are the, probably if you Google it, those are the districts that you'll see uh, written about. Uh, but those are two uh, districts in that province. Orozgan is a place where special operators were from the very beginning. That's where they linked up with Karzai, a uh, lot of uh, early days there. And uh, it did not work in Wardak. It worked in patches of Kandahar. And I also want to emphasize, and the book is really full of a lot of the things that didn't work, because I think it's very important uh, for people to understand how difficult this is uh, and that it doesn't all go well. And in this case, and we can talk about some of the things that didn't work in greater detail, but a lot of these things were still frictions between the special operations and the conventional forces. And I know they've come a long way. When I was first out there in Iraq in the early days, no conventional units had ever been remotely near uh, a special operations team. So, so they did come a long way, I think, in this last uh, decade plus in understanding each other and how they operated. Uh, but there were still problems, and there are still things to be um, taken care of. Human Rights Watch did a lengthy report on the local defense initiative. Um, there were some criticisms that, uh, and there were a number of cases. Some of them, I think, were pretty thinly um, supported by evidence, partly because that team, those researchers couldn't get out to a lot of these places. But the command, I think, took the right approach. They initiated their own investigation, and they investigated every one of those allegations, and then they published a report, and they confirmed those allegations that they said, yes, these were abuses or these were violations of the program's rules. And again, to me, this shows how far the special operations community has come in being willing to open its doors and share, you know, the clean laundry and the dirty laundry. Um, and I think that's really the only way people can have a reputation, you know, founded on facts. Uh, the future, a lot of application for the civil defense. And I'll just say, I'm not uh, advocating it, but I want to say, for example, Yemen, full of tribes, very tribal society. Uh, North Mali, Tuareg, you know, very uh, tribal. There are a lot of places in Africa that people are concerned about. Um, and the key of this program in Afghanistan was that it was a volunteer. These villagers wanted to defend their own villages. That was the cornerstone of the program. The second cornerstone was it was not just uh, arming local defenders. It was a stability operations approach where they had development workers alongside them trying to figure out what were the key conflict drivers in that village. Um, and a lot of these special operators got very involved in things like 
road building, chromite production, you know, the things that the poppy versus the wheat uh, crops, you know, all these things, and the, the tribal fishers uh, in Maywand. I mean, really, uh, to me, that conflict is driven by the Ishaksai tribe being locked out of both the power, uh, the formal and informal basis of power. So I see that the special operators really came back to their Vietnam-era roots, working with tribes, working with the populations, and to me, that's, I think, a good skill set for them to have for uh, for the future and that it's applicable in other places. But I don't see anywhere where we're going to be sending more than a few teams to work at a very kind of quiet way replicating some of these experiences. So, uh, <coughs> I want to take the opportunity to ask a couple of questions and then we'll open it up. First of all, the culture as it's sort of uh, been reported of special ops is intense secrecy and great resistance to uh, to information about their operations. The Osama bin Laden operation, for instance, probably is the one that there's been most intense interest in and the one that's been the most controversial, both within the special ops world and, uh, and outside. What do you think is the mind of the special ops uh, hierarchical, you know, administrators now about cooperating with you, uh, allowing, are, are you you or are you sui generis or is this something that, that the special operations <laughs> world is going to be willing to uh, let others look at as well? Um, I don't, I hope I'm not sui generis. I mean, I think I have been given the most access, although, you know, there are a lot of people working in this area now. The big problem I see is that they're going to require a commitment that people really understand their community and not do a kind of quick hit or drive-by. And unfortunately, the news business today is by and large unwilling to fund the kind of in-depth research uh, and extended uh, sojourns out there. You know, I call it parachute reporting, and I, I lament it deeply. Um, and so I think that's perhaps the major impediment. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned the bin Laden raid, and this is the other thing. The media cares about the call of duty type of guys jumping out of helicopters in the dead of night. And don't get me wrong, this is a very important skill set. It's not going anywhere. It's part of what special ops do. But there is such a fixation on that. Um, and in some ways, the raid is the most straightforward of this, what things that the special operators do. Uh, so there is also that kind of frustration um, and that people genuinely don't seem interested in some of these other more complex and difficult. I mean, a raid is one thing, and you have highly trained, I don't care if they're SEAL or Army operators going out there to conduct it. It's a difficult thing. The bin Laden raid was a case in point. But how much more difficult is it to do if you have to bring along your partner? <laughs> much more difficult. And I recount one raid in this cross-border incident with Pakistan where they were out there with the Afghan commandos, and that is truly difficult. But that's what I call the wave of the future because these unilateral operations are only going to be undertaken in the dire, most dire circumstances where friends Frankly, we don't care if we have the country's permission or not. Uh, and in the case of Pakistan, you don't know which arm is saying yes or no in that country. But, it, you know, they certainly weren't given advance warning of the bin Laden raid. So having a partner force along is generally going to be the more politically and diplomatically palatable option. But it is the more technically difficult route to go. And given your knowledge of the people in special ops who have been the most intimately connected with uh, with this effort in Afghanistan in the way you just described. If they were, if you were to sort of character, characterize their attitude about whether it was worth the mission, worth the lives, worth the blood, worth the treasure, that there's going to be an enduring um, result, what do you think they would say? Well, I would say the view of most um, non-commissioned officers, senior enlisted, uh, senior sergeants, and they make up the rank and file of most of these teams. Uh, the line I kept hearing over and over was, we're not going to have enough time to make this work. Um, and it was because a lot of the war was spent with a unilateral counterterrorism focus, and they really just started the partnering focus late 
in the game. And this is a long-term commitment. This is what made it work, uh, in my view, work in Colombia, work in the Philippines, was it was really taken on and extended for as a decade, a small footprint for a decade. And they kind of knew that because these guys, and this is what the book is also, and it's really not just Afghanistan because all of them had been in the Philippines, in Colombia, in these other places. So they were talking about the similarities and differences and what made it work there and what was making it hard in Afghanistan. And so I think there was an overall skepticism about having the time to do it. Now, we're still waiting on the end game, right? We don't know if they're going to be there in an advisory capacity uh, for some years um, longer. And I think that is, that's really what's going to tell the tale. One final question. How do these people get chosen? I assume they volunteer. Uh, what is the profile psychological and otherwise, of someone who is a good prospect for special ops? Um, well, I think that certainly they volunteer. They volunteer multiple times. I mean, they obviously volunteer for the service, they volunteer for airborne, they volunteer for uh, the special operations selections, which are all quite rigorous and the washout rate is very high. Um, in the case of this expansion, the average age has gone down over the last decade, um, but it's still, it's in the upper 20s. It used to be 30, uh, and that really gives you a maturity, you know, and this is, I can't emphasize enough that just those life years of experience and that seasoning as a military person, that's why you can send these 12 or 14 guys out there, is they've had time, they've been around the block, they don't lose their, you know. I saw in many of these places they had an infantry squad attached to the team, and these young guys had a very hard time being out there for as long as a year in the middle of nowhere with no uh, senior supervision around. So it just brought to me into relief how, how much maturity, as much as that specific skill set. But the personality, you know, I think um, it has to be someone who is interested in other cultures to do this kind of work um, and someone who has people skills. Uh, to interact with people. Now there were some, and I loved this, and I really did love the time I spent spent in Uruzgan. Most of it was after um, J.R. Anderson's time, but there were some Navy SEALs that this really clashed with their image of themselves as they were unilateral, direct action, special reconnaissance guys. But some of them were completely gifted, including um, the commander, uh, that I spent a lot of time with Mike Hayes, very gifted, understood the politics, he'd served in the White House. He really saw this as a giant political puzzle. Uh, and I think that is what I see emphasized now in the leadership. Uh, the leadership is saying, okay, who are our guys, and are we going to send them to Harvard? We're going to send them to some graduate uh, training. We're going to send them to SAMS, which is the Army's uh, they call it the Jedi School for Super Planners. You know, it, they want to develop that intellectual side of them. Now, of course, they have to be extremely physically fit. They have to, and for anyone who has um, engaged in even marksmanship as a hobby, you know, it is very perishable. So you have to always keep those skills up, or they uh, atrophy quite quickly. So it's really a very demanding profession, and I do lament all of this deployment has cost a lot of people stress in their families, um, and that's military-wide phenomenon, but, but there's, they have paid the price for all this deployment. Let me open it up now to uh, students and National Security Fellows qualify as students. So, yeah. <laughs> well, let me follow up on some of your questions, and perhaps you can lay this from your perspective. So your first question was one of culture, and then your last question uh, was one of requirements. So if you could speak a little bit to culture, specifically the fact that there are a host and variety of cultures within the special operations communities. There are vastly different cultures. There's not just one culture. Speak to that a little bit because they are, they are above 180 you can get depending on which one it is. Then the last thing, of course, would be that, the, the, which is a follow-on to that, and the subset of that is, is in terms of mission requirements or the requirements it takes to get into some of these communities, vastly different depending on what, what they're going to do. The skill sets for somebody who's a, who's a ranger by, say, uh, a special forces uh, operator by uh, a Navy SEAL are vastly different. Are they? Requirements. So maybe if you could speak to yeah. culture and their requirements. Yes. Well, thank you for that question. And it is, um, 
you know, I jokingly used the soft tribes. I think it might have been General Allen that first uh, started using that. He says, I've got my soft tribes here. And there were so many divisions that he had separate meetings with them. And then he pulled them together and into one meeting. And then finally it was... Uh, pushed by this most senior command saying, no, we're going to create something called the Sojidif and bring all these tribes together. So absolutely, uh, very different cultures, very different competencies, and the frictions that come with that kind of tight unit cohesion and unit identification. And I think, though, it's important that that parochialism be offset by the emphasis on this is supposed to be a joint soft community. And I actually saw it being forged with these commands that were assembled. Um, and I saw three uh, cycles, a General uh, Scott Miller, General uh, Chris Haas, and then General Tony Thomas, all from different tribes, but their staffs were made up of a mix of people. <laughs> And from all of those, and I think that is the kind, and they were driven, you know, 18-hour days they were working. So in that kind of crucible of intensity, you do overcome, I think, a lot of those, oh, I'm a SEAL, oh, you're an aviator, oh, you're this. Uh, and I would like to point out, this is very interesting because the Rangers absolutely have direct action, small unit raid mission, but they had a partner force. They developed a partner force. So what I'm saying about partnering applies to every one of them, except when you have, like, <coughs> the guys that fly the birds are going to keep flying the birds, and they need to do that, because that is a technical skill, but but ground operators, whether they're SEAL, Army, Marines, uh, they all need to have those attributes that I mentioned, and uh, I think you could argue whether we need to replicate all of our stovepipes in the Afghan Special Operations Forces. Uh, organization, which is what they've done, but they have all been out there working with partners, and part of it was uh, forced over time, that you're not just going to be able to go out there and do things unilaterally. You have got to have uh, your partner force, and you've got to have an Afghan there saying yay or nay whether that raid uh, is going to be launched. Also, and, and Jared can correct me, but you still have a, you have a language requirement now, uh, I believe, so, and, and, and the... Um, there is also an anchor team concept where, where SEALs are being assigned to go on repeat tours to the same places. Now, the SEALs have a very, you know, different model of personnel and how they uh, train up and how long they're together as a unit. But I think I've spoke, the broad statements that I've made actually apply to more of the community, but this has been an evolution. Well, like, for instance, what is the difference between a Ranger and a Green Beret? Well, a ranger is an infantry officer, so he is actually not a separate branch from the infantry branch of the Army, whereas a, a Green Beret Special Forces, it, that is its own branch, as is Civil Affairs and PSYOP. And that, what does that mean? And that means rangers will come and go to assignments in the conventional Army, whereas the Special, Opera, special Forces tend to stay in their own formations in the career. But I was actually just at Fort Leavenworth yesterday, and there was some very intense discussion about the need to put more special forces out into the conventional army formations to get that connectivity. And in fact, over the last five years, they've begun putting uh, special forces generals out as assistant division commanders, which is the number two uh, commander at a division. And that, I think, I think that's very important. I mean, all of this stovepiping stuff, I think, really inhibits the basic military principle of unity of command, that you have to have one team out there and a one-team approach. And I hope someone will ask me about the development aspect, because I've got some, some one-team um, observations about that, too. Yes, sir. there is a real hesitancy about integrating females into the Rangers, into Delta, into SEALs, as opposed to not just, I guess they've taken females along to search women in both countries, but integrating them as operators. Did you discuss that, and what do you think the, the feelings are amongst that community? Yeah, no, that's a great question, and I think that the, the standards are rigorous enough, and everyone agrees that this you know, having a special operations community, you've got to maintain the standards. So you have to, I think, uh, be able to um, uh, structure this in a way that if they are going to admit women, they're able to function as they need to function. 
uh, and I know studies are going on about this. So <laughs> I, I would not, um, I'm not the source for up to the minute what is going to happen within the special operations community, but I have my own opinions that I will share. Um, the, uh, I did observe the cultural support teams out in Afghanistan with these small units. Um, and I think that the original motivation for doing this was to have females with the units who could search the females on raids when you entered a compound or encountered females so that you would not create a huge culture, cultural catastrophe, frankly. Uh, but they had to have a way to, to make sure that was not a man with a bomb or a gun under that burqa. And that was absolutely legitimate, and having a female do it uh, was the right way to go. I have less... Um, uh, and especially this culture is so delicate that I, I frankly don't think that the cultural support teams, in my view, were terribly successful. Now, this is anecdotal. This isn't a scientific study. By cultural support team, you mean women? The women. These were women yeah. that, first of all, had to go through a rigorous physical selection process. These were women already in the service. Um, and so they weren't selected on their basis of can you interact with the population? Do you have Afghan-specific skills? Do you have a specific skill you're going to be imparting? It, it was just, are you women? You can make the physical cut. You volunteer, you make the physical cut, and then we're going to send you out there. And then, okay, they weren't supposed to have an intelligence collection job, but they were supposed to go and make contact with the female half of the population. I think it was not a terribly well thought out, what is the, what is the purpose of this? And I, more importantly, I did not witness a lot of success because... I do not think just because you're a female, you're automatically going to be able to connect with these females with totally different life experiences. I said I witnessed the kind of, you know, I was someone from Mars. Imagine a woman coming into these homes, which this is the inner sanctum. I mean, to come into someone's home, very delicate thing you've got to negotiate. They are wearing uniforms. They're carrying guns that barrier right there it's like oh and I was in one case the woman and it's in the book the woman she was polite but you could tell she was terrified and they'd been to see her before and at the end of this engagement she said please don't come back the Taliban are going to think that I'm collaborating and they're going to kill me or my children and and I just think that we have to think about this now getting into the the should they be part of the units also these guys are out there, very austere conditions for a long time, and I don't want to sound, I mean, I'm a woman, right? I'm all in favor of women doing everything they possibly can. I just think this has to be looked at and handled very carefully. I really appreciate you taking the time to get the story right, and um, I've got a little experience in the community, and, and think you captured it very well. Um, one of the things that you talked about just a little bit in your report is the unity of command but also tying in the, the interagency just a little bit. But you didn't explore to really develop it a whole lot. And as we look to going into places, let's say in Africa, that you kind of allude, you alluded to a little bit, um, what, what kind of a role are we gonna expect out of our special operators for the, the soft sciences or diplomacy, economics, and other things? Uh, and, and where do we expect the interagency partnership to, to really pick up and, and go in and be, become an integral part of these small teams? Thanks for that question. And I did want to address, um, I think I'll, I'll make two points. The partnering USAID's Office of Transition Initi Initiatives, I think, are the best partners for special operators. And there was one woman out there, Mary Ketman in Paktika. She stayed longer than any teams. She was there for two years straight. She's back there now. She's come and gone. She's done the same in Africa. She has a home, actually, in Kenya. And she is amazing. Um, and at first, you know, she was not at all uh, sure, she wanted to interact with this special operations team out there, and they, you know, came off at first blush as kind of wild guys. But in fact, these were the guys that were studying city management as they got into how to make, you know, these places work. So they formed a great team, and I think this is where we don't have to have the special operators be the experts, but just be able to work effectively with them. Uh, and people, and OTI is really, those are the expeditionary people from USAID 
that have as their mission going to conflict zones. And by and large, you know, I saw some that work better and less well with the military, and there's always that concern because they work through their own population networks, and they don't want to endanger those locals by a military association that could get them targeted. And to me, that is an incredibly important thing for the military <coughs> part of this team to understand and work in ways that everybody is, is happy with. Uh, what I, I think, and I've been doing some research on uh, Africa, and I think it, that the Amazon experience in the Horn of Africa is fascinating. You have the State Department, ACODA program, and PREACT. These are all acronyms, but they're, they are programs that are, are both training and advising um, those countries' forces, but they're also development programs. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, the State Department has a little bit of a difficult, I don't think their model is quite right yet because they often hire contractors to actually do the work. And uh, you've got to make sure they are really, uh, uh, that you have control over the program design and evaluation. Um, I think it's working in some cases, so you're probably going to have a mix of civilians, contractors, and special operators out there. Uh, and I think that can work. And I think what's interesting about the Horn of Africa endeavor is it kind of grew, um, it wasn't a coherent plan that we're going to have a multinational operation and then we're going to have special operations training high-end units, we're going to have development people doing this, but it's kind of grown up into a more or less coherent plan. And I think it could be a good model when I mentioned, you know, multilateral endeavors. And this Amazon is a peace enforcement mission. But in a wild and hairy place like Somalia and with the bleed over, you have to have a security component well, to it. You, I want to follow up on that. You, you talked about civilians and contractors. What about the CIA? What about extra military uh, institutions and and things yeah. like things that are outside that that military sort of structure. Right, and this I and there are some things. Um, you, some of you may have noticed Paul Pillar, retired CIA National Intelligence Officer, reviewed my book in the New York Times this weekend, and he's from the analyst side. I expected he might have addressed some of those things in my book about the CIA. I. I think because, of course, as you say, the CIA is not part of any military chain of command, coordination and agreement on who, what is whose lane in the road and what's the division of labor, and especially when you get paramilitary groups out there in the same patch of territory, you know, some of them may be less well uh, commanded and controlled than others, you're going to have problems. So I think it's imperative, and this is what, you know, if anyone saw the John Brennan's confirmation hearings before he became CIA director, he was thinking, I think, about some of these things, and I think that is, um, it's important for the CIA to have some paramilitary capability, but they probably don't be needing to do, my personal opinion, as many things that are more in the military lane. Um, there's always going to be, be a need for covert action capability, but you could second entire units. You know, you could have a different way well, do they, of doing this do they, than do they, they do, do now. Do they populate those paramilitary units with uh, special ops people? Uh, they do have some seconded, but the problem is it's really, there, and there are also a lot of contract people, it's just run in a very different yeah. way. Yes, Joe. Um, hi. Hi, Joe. Uh, I'm interested in the cross-pollination of um, uh, soft skills into the conventional forces, which took place uh, pretty dramatically over the last 10 years, and especially in the, in the training. I, I know that soft training is more than hell week. It involves a lot of scenario training, um, and that bled into, Petraeus introduced that into the Army. How, this may be beyond your brief, but how successful do you think the conventional forces were at performing soft-like activities, especially uh, in, well, I watched them do it in, in, uh, in Jari province. Uh, and the other, and, and the second question is, when did the village program start in Afghanistan? Mm -hmm. um, yes, the last question first. The uh, village stability operations, Afghan local police began in 2009. It had a different name then, but it's just easier to keep in, in mind the 2009 uh, time. And they were working with different groups, non, 
for, uh, constituted forces uh, groups from the early days. But this was really when they got organized. They had a methodology. They had train-up, this very intense, they called it Soft Academic Week. They had all kinds of experts come in, and they really said, okay, this is how we're going to do it, and it has to be the elders pick, they volunteer, the elders vet them, you know, in this whole ground-up approach, and then trying to tie it in through the district chiefs of police and the provincial chiefs of police, which worked when you had good chiefs of police. Didn't, you know, didn't work when you didn't, but it didn't mean that it couldn't survive and work as a local <laughs> community watch group. Um, and I think that's why some of those places will um, uh, survive. But the migration of these practices and skills over to the conventional forces um, wa was did happen. A lot of it was they came to it on their own, but there was a lot of uh, deliberate uh, transfer. Uh, I think you had an intensive experience of advising constituted units through the mitts in, uh, in Iraq. Many, many uh, conventional forces were assigned to mentor police and um, military units in Iraq. And that, again, that's painful business. You know, it takes a long time. There also were conventional forces raising those, uh, the sons of Iraq, so they were engaging directly with populations. We should say probably for the civilians that MITs are military transition teams. Yes, sorry. Uh, I did the acronym and, and thing is, again. And what does that mean? That means that a small group of, of American troops are assigned to a larger group of Iraqi or Afghanistan troops, and, and they train them up. Okay. Right. right. So it was the exact, it was, it was advising and assisting, mentoring. Uh, the things that I've been talking about as the Special Operations Forces are coming back to some of their roots to do. Now, going forward, this is a hugely... Um, this is a question roiling the Army in particular right now as they try to figure out is their future going to be just back at home, training on bases, waiting for another big war, or are they going to push out and do some of these things? And they have a scheme called Regionally Aligned Forces whereby they intend to have some brigades ready to go out as needed to perform these missions. They've done it some with training of ECOWAS, oh gosh, another acronym, uh, West African countries to help in the stabilization and peacekeeping associated with Mali. And they didn't get much notice, the first units, and they out there and back, so really, do you have a habitual relationship with the region? Do you have a habitual, uh, an ability for troops to keep cycling through? It's that familiarity. It's not that you're going to become Lawrence of Arabia of that particular country, but do you have it? And I don't know that the Army is really going to be, um, it doesn't look like they're going to be committed to creating enough regional familiarity and enough regional ties. And I think it will be hard for them then to do what they've done over the last decade. And I lament that. Yes. Yes. Uh, I'm interested in your thoughts on kind of the state of big picture special operations policy and command right now, where policy is essentially created at the White House, executed by SOCOM, and usually without um, oversight, authority, or even awareness by the regional combatant commands. Um, there's a, a big push to put uh, put the power back in the hands of the geographic combatant commanders, and I think that you know this is part. You probably read some some headlines about that because it was a very White House focused. Uh, approach similarly, kind of the drones, the raids, and the partnering. And now, I think the emphasis you will see increasingly publicly partnering, and the raids that go on will be by and large partnered. And to the maximum extent possible, your host country, your target country, is going to agree, which was the case with Yemen. You know, the Had President Hadi has accepted the need for drone strikes. So there's a lot of controversy about whether they're relying too much on drones and couldn't be partnering more with some of the elements in Yemen, but that's a long-term approach. And ultimately, it's a policy decision. So there is, has to all start with a policy decision about this country's important enough that we're going to devote some kind of effort, maybe not large, but it may take a long time. Are we willing to do that? And then there's the whole... I don't want to go out of here without making mention of the conditionality aspect. You have to assess, is this partner a good enough partner? You have the Leahy law. You have to vet the units that you're going to be um, training. And those, I think, are very important because they are telling the partner, 
there's accountability in this relationship. You know, we're, we're not going to just uh, train anyone. Uh, and I, but I think that the biggest problem is this country's ability to sustain an effort. And that's why it's, it's been my view that the smaller the effort can be, the longer you're likely to be able to uh, sustain it and thus get to the actual results. Because these units don't become proficient or professional over time. But I, I've seen enough cases where I think it can be, if you make a wise choice about that partner <clears throat> and constantly reinforce that. You know, a lot of people use Mali as not a success story because the coup was conducted by a colonel who had U.S. training. But the one unit that stayed loyal to that government actually had received the most intensive training. So it's kind of a more complex lesson uh, coming out of that one. Yes, uh, naturally, politicians being who they are, after things like the Milan raid, the successful Captain Phillips engagement, and the other more high-profile successes, there's a quick affinity from the White House and senior DOD civilians to make everybody aware that they're part of that military chain of command. The concern I have in the community is that we may become at some point a victim of our own success where this seems like the easy button, and it's just a matter of time before Americans wake up in the morning, turn on television, there's you know, 12 naked corpses of a Delta team being drunk in the streets somewhere. So when that does happen, and it will happen, uh, again, yeah, precisely, um, what, how do you think that shakes out politically? Um, are they going to, is the media going to put the microphone in the face of the president or of the SOCOM commander and not, maybe, maybe instead of asking, should we have done this, instead it's, well, what did you all do wrong? Because we've seen, as American consumers of information, that this always works. It's always so easy. They're, they're highly trained. They get in, they get out, and there hasn't been a cost. So how does it shake out politically? Yeah. Um, you've described a lot of uh, different incentives and pressures. And that, I think, what you've painted there explains a lot of why there's been such a heavy reliance on drones because you're not going to have American troops boots on the ground in a combat situation that could go wrong, and then you have got a huge crisis on your hands. And it was uh, really, I think, to the credit of the uh, SEAL team in the recent attempted uh, capture in um, Somalia that they chose to extricate themselves rather than uh, carry out operations or call in airstrikes or do anything that could have caused uh, civilian casualties, and that would have occurred, I, I note, on the 20th anniversary of Black Hawk Down, of the Battle of Mogadishu. So can you imagine, um, and Frank in his old life would have had to deal with a catastrophic strategic, not just a tactical failure, which is what, which is what it was, but that should be tolerable if we understand these things are not magic. You know, and this is why I use Call of Duty as kind of this bumper sticker. People should never think it's easy, whether it's partnered or unpartnered, and they should only be undertaken when there is a clear demonstrable national interest to do so. And I don't want anyone to think my you know, my presentation is an advocacy for liberal or untrammeled use of special operations in any, you know, pick your country of the week. There are a number of countries around the world that probably will welcome and have welcomed the help, and there are probably a few very discreet, vital, dire and imminent threats to national security that require very limited use of the unilateral approach, whether it's a drone or a raid. And I think this is sort of also where the country is. You know, we have a great asset, let's use it when needed, but absolutely not, no overuse. Yes, sir. In our 24-7 media savvy world that we live in now, um, there's a paradigm shift away from the old silent killer label that has been given to our special operations community since I've been serving for the last 20 plus years that we're kind of taking a departure away from it seems. And, and I think it's attributed to the likes of Call of Duty to where there is this clamoring from the public to understand what our special forces uh, community is really experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis. Can you speak a little bit to, from the standpoint of from your seat, as opposed to from a military seat, the shift in what you've seen over your career path and where you think it's heading? Because I think there is some credence to 
uh, not having the general public understand every single operation that the special forces is executing, but yet there is still that call for it from the public. <sighs> yes. You know, it's, um, I think there's a um, very intelligent um, leadership that has decided they have to have the American public understand special operations and understand what they can do. Um, and I think they're trying to also um, convey their roadmap for the future. But it has to be done, I think, always with acknowledgement that this is a country where there's civilian rule of the military and all the policy decisions are going to be made uh, by the civilians. But I think there is a broad rationale for uh, greater openness. I think there is also, we're in a very open society, right? And technology makes it much more open than ever. So I think that's almost a fact of the environment, that things, more things are going to be known today whether or not some constituted authority wants them to be known. So the choice is rather how to deal with that um, openness and how to acknowledge that there will be, as I said, both unilateral reporting and, um, you know, reporting that is done with the door being open for them. So I think that is, uh, that is the society and the world we're, we're living in now. But there are also, I mean, there are some things that are affecting the young. Operators aren't the same as the operators of past generations. Now, I did just find out your father kept a diary, and it's now in the archives at, down at Fort Bragg, and that's a wonderful piece of history. But for mm -hmm. operators who want to tell their own story the minute they come off an operation, that's another pressure the command has to deal with. Uh, and I think that we... You know, we live in a society where people do want to tell their stories, and that's something that has to be, you know, these guys sign agreements not to divulge. Um, and so I think it's that delicate balance. I think that there are secrets worth keeping, but I think as we, anybody involved in the national security arena knows, there's far too much stuff classified that really doesn't have to be. Focus on keeping the secrets that have to be kept. And I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here um, and take that last question and turn it around on you um, and ask you to put your humbleness aside a little bit. The room is full of national security people who are driving to get their arms around this media relationship in the world of media. How did you, a woman from a news magazine, break into the nation's Break into, break, break, not break, like NSA break into, but how did you build the relationships? How did you uh, get into the community of perhaps the most coveted culture that didn't want to talk about it and not become a cheerleader, but become a source of truth for people throughout the country? How did you do that? Um, if you could shed some light on the group for the group, how you did that. Profound talent, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, Frank, I think the fact that people were willing to give me uh, a chance. I mean, I suppose I could have flown down to Iraq in Colombia and just shown up at the, knocked on the gate of the door. I mean, I did know the mayor of Iraq, but frankly, those guys weren't going to talk to me without uh, getting the okay from their superiors. Um, and I guess I just was willing to do my homework, number one. But it also, and this, I think any unit is, has its own sort of cloistered aspect. But really the special operations guys, they don't like outsiders. So every time I encountered a new unit, I had to be willing as I, you know, in Iraq, I'd sit on the back of the Humvee on the MRE boxes, the meals ready to eat boxes, and ride around for a couple of days. I wouldn't really try to talk to people until they got used to just my presence. As you point out, female, okay, I'm going to carry my own stuff. I'm not going to complain about having no shower for six days on end or for the entire first part of OIF-1. It's baby wipes. Okay, I'll make my little, you know, place there that I can go and sleep. So it's just being able to, you know, do what you need to do without causing other people disruption. But I think that um, not trying to go for that sensational thing, you know. And what the book is full of 
really difficult situations. But I was allowed to witness them, and I, they were shared with me, uh, including a you know a special forces major who completely went off the deep end and was drummed out of the force, and you know all these stories that hap things happen in war. So I guess you accumulate enough credibility that I'm going to treat it fair and square. But as you say, not leave it out. I mean, my credibility is at stake and my integrity is at stake. I'm not going to shy away from the unpleasant things, but I'm also not going to blow them out of proportion. Um, and I do think there probably are some people that will have heartburn over the high elements I highlighted about continued friction between special ops and conventional forces. But I do it so that people don't kid themselves that those issues don't still exist to be addressed. So I have a reason for it. I don't know this, but just my instinct is that it was judged by at least some people in authority in the special ops world that the only area of special ops that was getting attention was the most violent, the most, you know, the, the, the butta butta attacks and so forth. And special ops covers a great deal, obviously, more than that. Some of it's not very glamorous. Some of it is just hard. And my sense is that they felt that what the story they wanted to get out and hope would get out was a nuanced story, a story not that told secrets so much as explained that special ops covers more than, you know, the search for bin Laden. Right. And there are gunfights in the book, and there is a very well, bad bo border, cross-border raid, and it goes, you know, causes an international crisis, but they weren't just out there to kill people. In fact, the primary role was to defend people. So that's it. Well, listen, Linda, thank you so much, <laughs> and thank you, National Security Fellows. We were delighted to have you here. Yeah.